Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. And this week's sponsors, the Heising Simons Foundation and the Gates Foundation. I'm Louis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, this week, new data was released showing that student enrollment in California dropped significantly, especially in kindergarten this year. And Los Angeles Unified Superintendent Austin Butner dropped the news that he would be stepping down at the end of the school year. This week, we'll talk about both developments. Later in the podcast, we'll interview Arun Ramanathan from Pivot Learning to talk about what to do when missing kindergartners show up in first grade without reading and social skills they would have gotten if they had been in kindergarten. But first, let's talk about Austin Butner. On Wednesday, he announced he would be stepping down at the end of his contract on June 30th. He apparently surprised the board, but whatever discussion he and the board had about extending his contract was in executive session. Lewis, you and reporter Betty Marquez Rosales spoke with him on Thursday. What did you learn? Well, John, I think obviously lots of things go into any kind of resignation. But, you know, what really seems to have made a huge difference was just the grueling nature of the pandemic. Superintendent Butner told us that he's been working 15 hours a day, seven days a week. He says, nobody was telling me to do that, but that's the type of person I am. Uh, If I have to do a job, I, I do whatever it takes. But I think that was just a grueling 13, 14 months that he and many other superintendents around the state have been dealing with. Not only superintendents, but everyone in education. How unusual was his resignation? Unfortunately, superintendent turnover is kind of a fact of life, particularly in urban districts and particularly in large urban districts. And LA Unified has really been a victim of that. I mean, so much turnover in recent years. It hasn't been a superintendent maybe since Superintendent Romer, the former governor in Colorado who came to California. There hasn't been a superintendent that's stayed longer than three, maybe four years. Yeah. Do you have a sense, Lewis, whether other superintendents are feeling the same way? Absolutely. I mean, what we're seeing nationally, John, is that in you know some of the largest districts in the country, New York, uh, Richard Carranza, who was formerly in San Francisco and then Houston briefly thereafter, he stepped down. Superintendents in Denver and Seattle have also stepped down. We looked at the superintendents in the state's 30 largest districts. And uh, you know, of the 30 superintendents who were in place in 2017, by this June, only 15 will still be in their slots. And I think there's now a lot of concern that we're going to see more resignations because of the pressures of the pandemic. I think it's possible that quite a few superintendents were kind of hanging in there to kind of get their districts through the pandemic. And now that there's light at the end of the tunnel, I think a few like Austin Butner may decide it's time to step down. Well, so the big question is what impact his resignation is going to have on students and, you know, how well they adjust and how well they do from here on. What's your perspective on that? There's actually been some research that's come out, uh, I'd say much disputed research. I think the, the Brookings Institution put out a paper a few years ago. They studied some states and looked at the impact of superintendent turnover on student performance and they found that it didn't have much impact. However, talking with uh, a number of very smart people in the state, uh, Carl Cohn, who is the superintendent in Long Beach and in San Diego, Becca Bracey, who runs the Broad Center, and others, I think there's a consensus that stability in leadership 
and continuity in leadership really does make a difference in terms of introducing reforms, sustaining reforms, and keeping people focused on the task at hand. Well, let's drill a little bit deeper into the issue of LA Unified, and let's turn to somebody who knows. That's John Rogers. He's a professor of education at UCLA. He's a close observer of a district, and he's done some research on it too. He's also an advocate for how best to serve the needs of low-income students in Los Angeles Unified in California. Welcome, John. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, John. I imagine the pending resignation of Austin Butner came as a surprise to you? Absolutely. I had had no sense. And there, there really hadn't been any public discussion about Austin Butner leaving his position. So let me ask you about that. To what extent do you think at least a, a good chunk of this had to do with the pressures of the pandemic that every school district has been dealing with, but obviously LA Unified, massive school district, the logistical challenge alone seem rather overwhelming. I take Mr. Butner at his word. Uh, It makes sense to me that the long hours over this lengthy period of time when there was extraordinary pressures to ensure that young people had food, ensure that there was a safe way for them to connect to the learning in their classrooms, all of the stress related to political pressures tied to when the school should reopen, how they should reopen. That's a lot to take on. And that was coming after Mr. Butner had already faced a series of battles during his first years as superintendent. So it makes sense to me that that he has come to a point of deep fatigue and a readiness to, to move to another position. Well, let me ask you, to to what extent do you think that the pressures he was feeling or is feeling are unique to LA Unified? And to what extent are they something that really everyone is dealing with? I think we see from the superintendency to district middle managers to principals to teachers a lot of fatigue right now. Um, There's a sense in which they've been running a marathon without an end point. And and I think that people are at a point right now where, where they're ready for a break. And I think that's part of what makes the reopening process in Los Angeles so challenging. People are are fatigued. So I, I'm not surprised that he and other superintendents are, are feeling this, this level of stress. And yet we need to look forward and think about not just how we reopen, but how we reopen fundamentally differently for the next year and how we build back in, in ways that are adding additional experiences to young people who've lost out on a lot over the last year. I mean, people are actually looking to schools to do more, right? To rethink, to innovate, uh, got all this money coming in at a time when, uh, as you say, I think a lot of people are feeling exhausted. I actually have made the argument that it would make sense to to reconnect young people to, to schools in the next few weeks, but not to try to reproduce what a regular May would look like in classrooms. And then to spend more time just stepping back, trying to, to take stock of what's happened, and then fundamentally trying to rethink what schools can do and how we want to reinvite young people back into the educational process in a way where they want to be there, they're deeply engaged and ready to learn. This is sort of the end of almost like a military campaign where you had a, a superintendent who had emergency powers and now we're going back and it sort of restores 
back to the traditional relations, I suppose, between a superintendent and a school board with also the challenges of negotiations and now spending, believe it or not, billions of dollars that have not been there before. Does this require a different skill set? Is this appropriate sort of you change to a different way of dealing with the job of superintendent? I think you're absolutely right, John. Mr. Butner, his skill set was really well suited towards a set of logistics tasks that had to play out over the last 15 months. We're now at a point, though, when the task is really different. The consensus around making sure that food was there, making sure that young people had connectivity, now opens up into a set of tasks for which there isn't consensus about how to promote high-quality teaching and learning across this very large, very diverse school district that has a substantial proportion of young people who enter as English learners. Los Angeles has struggled to do well by its students in the past. And I think what's needed now is a leader who can come in, who has a strong understanding of teaching and learning, of how to create professional communities of learning at school sites, and who also has a strong understanding in supporting English learners in particular to be successful in the schooling process. John, it's also a challenge though, for a new leader to come in who doesn't have that working relationship with a board to create that dynamic. I mean, there's no honeymoon period for whoever takes over, right? And as you said, decisions have to be made, really critical decisions within the next month. I think that's right. But being the superintendent of the second largest school district in the United States is going to be a tough job no matter what. It requires political acumen. It requires a deep understanding of educational policy and of teaching and learning. And so we need somebody extraordinary. And that's why I think it's really critical to do a national search, to do it with purposefulness, and to do it in a manner that's deeply inclusive of the very diverse communities across Los Angeles, making sure that they feel connected and invested in this process. Talking with John Rogers, professor of education at UCLA. John, let me just push back a little bit on that. I've talked with some people, uh, Carl Cohn and others, who feel that a national search at this time would be a mistake. That really what we should be doing, or at least try to do, is hire, even if it's an interim superintendent, but for a good deal of time and invest that person with significant authority. And Superintendent Butner himself thinks the board should hire somebody from his own leadership team. Uh, Because do we really have the time for this? There's a certain irony in Mr. Butner, who was an educational outsider, now saying that we should have an educational insider, an educational professional. I think that one of the dynamics of Los Angeles, a political dynamic, is that the school board when confronted with only partially empowered superintendent is going to assert their authority over much. And so I I think it's important to have a superintendent at the helm who has his or her own political capital, a sense of, of strength in the position, because the appropriate role for a school board is to mark off a long-term set of goals and plans and let the professionals do their job. 
And for that to occur, you need to have a strong person at the center. LA is unusual in that the school board members are full-time, they are paid a very generous salary, and they also have a staff of uh, six to seven people. And in fact, as Superintendent Butner points out, they have more people than he has collectively. And he did suggest that that was attention, not the reason he was leaving, but he was saying there needs to be clarity between what the superintendent's role is and the board's role, suggesting that that's not always the case in Los Angeles. And I dare say at many other school districts as well. I think that's right. I believe deeply in the importance of democratic governance over our public school system. Having school board members who, who share their ideas, who share their concerns, who represent their constituents powerfully, all of that's really important. But I would say that we want school board members to mark off long-term goals, to articulate broad policy visions, and then step back and let the superintendent and the superintendent staff and principals and teachers do the important work of educating Los Angeles' young people. Well, more to come, obviously, on that front. We've been talking with John Rogers, Professor of Education at UCLA. Thanks for joining us today, John. Thanks, Lewis. Thanks, John. Always nice talking to you. This week, California released figures on the number of students enrolled in schools this year, this year, of course, of, during the pandemic, and it showed the biggest decline in enrollment in more than two decades. The biggest decline by far was in kindergarten. John, just to clarify, we aren't talking about how many kids were in school or taking classes via distant learning or in-person or hybrid, anything like that. We're talking about how many students were enrolled in a district or a charter school or a private school, regardless of how they received their instruction. Yep, that's, that's right, Lewis. It's based on how many students were enrolled on the first Wednesday of October. They do it every year. It's called Census Day. This is a pandemic-related decline, and... That seems to me a real problem when we're talking about kindergarten. I think research is pretty clear that high-quality early education makes a huge difference in kids succeeding later. And I believe Sean Reardon's research at Stanford showed that low-income students in California on average have been arriving in kindergarten far behind their peers nationally. And obviously, if they're not showing up for kindergarten, that's going to widen the gap even further. And the challenge now becomes how schools can figure out how to get the students who've missed kindergarten and others who've done poorly during this year of distance learning, how to get them up to speed. So let's turn to someone who has given this issue a lot of thought. Arun Aramanathan is the CEO of Pivot Learning. Pivot is an Oakland-based nonprofit that annually works with 100 high-need school districts in 16 states. Early childhood literacy is one of his particular interests. Welcome, Arun. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, John. Arun, among the disruptive impacts that the pandemic has caused, there's been a steep decline in enrollment in California this year, particularly in K-2, and 60,000 drop in enrollments in kindergarten. Apparently, we can only presume that a lot of parents didn't want their students to be in distance learning. So we assume that they will return next year, maybe first grade or perhaps repeat in kindergarten again. 
What should districts' response be? How should they welcome them back? During the course of the pandemic, I'm married to a teacher. My wife, Indelisa, was doing response to intervention with kindergartners, first graders, second graders, you know, basically kids who were reading behind grade level, right? And she was doing this in our basement and doing it virtually. And so you could hear the kids' voices as she was trying to work with them. But there are significant challenges working with kids that young in a virtual setting. Um, she's actually gone back to the classroom teaching kindergarten now, and there is a significant benefit that's accrued just from having the teacher and the students together, the students with other students, and the ability to provide that you know, clear instruction, that direct instruction in the classroom setting. I think that it's going to be one big benefit. But I think one of the things that we have to remember in, as Californians is that even pre-pandemic, we weren't doing such a great job teaching reading to our most underserved students. And in particular, to black students, to English learners, to Latino students. And what's become clear, though, over the last few years is an increasing recognition that there are better ways to teach reading, right? One, there's much better curriculum that's out there that can support kids to learn to read. But then secondly, and I think more importantly, we also know that for a very large percentage of readers, about 65%, they are not going to learn to read naturally, right? And so they need more explicit, more direct instruction in foundational skills. Particularly in the early grades, we're going to need to have a much more explicit focus on foundational skills, particularly phonemic awareness, if we want to catch kids up in reading. I would say that's the first thing. You're going to have students with a wide range of skills coming back. Does that compound the issue that we're talking about? It does compound the issue. But again, I think the research here is pretty straightforward. Again, on, you know, looking at kids coming back in from, you know, higher need households where there's less exposure to the English language, much less, um, you know, words that they're hearing before they enter into kindergarten, much less complex vocabulary. And middle, upper middle class parents, particularly white parents, are able to provide much more of that. We're right now working with the Sacramento County Office of Education on a, on a grant called the Early Literacy Grant. It's a block grant. And uh, we're working with 75 of the lowest performing schools statewide in reading. And we're, we're taking them through these sessions on how you actually teach reading and how you reach you know, your kids with the most needs. I mean, these are really, really high need school, schools. And, and what's been fantastic about that, uh, about that project is, is that the teachers who are part of that work, the principals who are part of that work, are really receptive to, to learning what the latest science is around reading the latest sciences around instruction, and then how do you actually apply that in the classroom? Kindergarten is not mandatory in California. Been a debate about that for quite a few years, whether it should be. So why should we be concerned? I mean, if parents decide they don't want to send the kids to school. I think there's always this, you know, the kids are so young, they really want to be playing around. Do they really want to be sitting in the classroom? And I think a lot of parents, you know, are actually concerned about starting schools too early. My perspective is that kindergarten is where you set the foundation for, for kids, both in terms of, you know, their ability to be successful in school just generally, you know, academically and behaviorally, but also those, those really important foundational skills that they need to learn in order to be able to read, right, and to do math and to progress through the grade levels without falling behind, right? I mean, 
for our highest need learners, we, we actually should be accelerating the amount of instruction, increasing the amount of instruction that they receive, you know, in pre-K, kindergarten, first grade. I believe that kindergarten is one of the most fundamental grades and kind of the cornerstone of the, the beginning of the learning experience for kids. So we should make it mandatory. So would you bring students in to the summer? I mean, obviously just adding hours to a kindergartner's day or a first grader's day is not probably the uh, best way of approaching it. And also, you know, not only have they missed literacy skills, but the whole socializing that they didn't get in kindergarten. And that I'm sure teachers are worried about that who are in first grade. From my lens and perspective, we should be providing as much opportunities for enrichment both academic and social emotional, right? Because you're right, those kids have suffered tremendously from not being around their peers. So we, we should be providing as much as we can those opportunities throughout the course of the summer. Districts have plenty of money to do that. And then we should be providing that enrichment opportunities after school. If necessary, we could provide it on, on weekends, but you know, and some parents may take advantage of that, but as long as districts have the resources to do that, Noting how crucial these early grades are, kindergarten through second grade, on both sides, social, emotional, and academic, as much enrichment as possible should be offered. We've been speaking with Arun Ramanathan, CEO of Pivot Learning. Thanks for joining us today, Arun. Thank you, John. Thank you, Lewis. Well, John, there have been so many things about this pandemic that we really couldn't have anticipated last March. And one of them was that uh, kindergarten enrollments would decline. And so this presents a real challenge for the state. It's a real challenge that they have to meet in the next couple months, as Arun said. And we're going to be following that, of course, with EdSource, but it's a critical issue. Well, on that note, that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe MacDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and EdSource's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.